Here we go. Rejecting the screen, going ISO edition as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Out west is Adam Stanko. A little bit south is Brendan Haywood, the 2011 NBA champion with the Mavs, the 1997 North Carolina State Player of the Year, a McDonald's All-American, an All-American at University of North Carolina, the 20th overall pick in the 01 draft. You can see him on NBA TV. You can watch him during the NCAA tournament on all the Turner networks. Brendan, let's go back. February 1st, 2001. My first game in Cameron Indoor, Duke, North Carolina. Battier fouls you inexplicably in a tie game near the mid-court line. What are you thinking going to the free throw line? Uh, man, it was uh, it was weird because we had a play where I was supposed to catch the ball closer to the to the three-point line and find a, uh, a teammate to pass the ball to. And with that much time on the clock, I probably wouldn't have been able to do anything but hoist up a bad three-pointer, which I wasn't going to hit. And so when Shane fouled me, the first thing was just, okay, be calm. And I started thinking back because if you go back to my freshman year, I missed the free throw at the end of the game with like mm-hmm. 10 seconds on the clock that could have helped us win the game. So I was like, just be calm. And once I hit the first one, I was good. And I wasn't a great free throw shooter, but I turned to the coach. I'm like, you want me to miss, want me to miss the second one on purpose? He was like, nah, just go ahead and do your thing. So <clears throat> that's what Matt Doherty said. So it was just a, a tough – it was a weird situation. Um, it was, it was nerve-wracking being at Cameron, but it was one of those moments I'll never forget. What, what was the celebration like? Uh, the celebration in the locker room was, it was incredible because, you know, Duke that year, they were riding high. They were very confident, very cocky. And just in the locker room, we didn't want to do too much because uh, I think we won that game. I think it was like a Thursday. We had another game on Saturday. Um, so we didn't want to do too much, but we, we, we knew we, we had accomplished something by going into Cameron and beating Duke. I think Shane Battier said something like he had never been second place a day in his life in the ACC, and that put him in second place. So Shane, Shane, Shane's kind of cocky and arrogant at times. Anytime you get to slap Shane in the back of the head, it feels good. <laughs> <laughs> taking, taking the Carolina experience, I want to go back even even further you're in high school. Noah just mentioned it. Uh, North Carolina Gatorade Player of the Year. Dean Smith was recruiting you. What's your best Dean Smith recruitment story? I don't really have a great story from recruitment, but just once I got on, once they, um, once I signed, um, I was a little overweight at the time, and they got me on the campus uh, that summer. They took my body fat weight, and he called me in his office, and he just said, um, Brendan, because I was 17 too. Said we, we've had two players come in here with your size, with a little bit of a weight problem at your age. One of them was Brad Doherty. The other one was Jeff Crompton. I said, hey, coach, who's Jeff Crompton? He looked at me and said, exactly. And then he, and then he, he had like this automatic button that he hit and it opened his door and told me to get out. He just hit the button like, yo, you're either going to lose his weight and become Brad Doherty or you're going to become Jeff Crompton and people are not going to know who you are. And that always sat with me. And um, it was one of those things that always pushed me on days where I didn't want to do certain things, where I didn't want to eat certain foods. At 19, at 17, 18 years old, it's hard to tell this guy, hey, man, go go eat healthy while the rest of your teammates eat pizza and chicken tenders. But it was something that stuck with me, and it led me to believe that, hey, man, I, I got a bigger goal than, than what some of these guys have, so I got I to gotta treat myself differently. Was it always Carolina for you? No, it was not. Um, and I always joke with this about Roy Williams. I actually grew up a diehard Kansas Jayhawk fan. Die hard. Oh, mm, mm. Well, when I got well, when I first got into basketball, my mom told me to. Uh, she had um, a NCAA tournament sheet for her job. She didn't know anything about basketball, so she said, "Hey, I want you to fill it out." And that year, 
I just happened to pick Kansas to win it. So I watched every Kansas game. And this is back in the day when, like, you know, they had, like, Adonis Jordan and mm-hmm. Richard Scott and Greg Randall. Overtag. Randall. Yeah. yeah, all those guys. So I just really followed that team. And from that point on, the next season, as I got more and more into basketball, because I followed that team that year, I kept following them. I mean, so it didn't matter if they had Jared Haas there, Jock Vaughn, Rafe LaFrent. I was a diehard Kansas fan. All Roy had to do was just put the offer on the table. But they, he actually offered a guy by the name of Eric Chenoweth, who didn't really do as well. Mm-hmm. But he, we, he was at that point, we were both competing. You know, he was the top, he was the top 25 recruit as well. And so um, if he would have offered this, if, if Kansas would offer me, I would have went there because I grew up my whole life rooting for Kansas. You said you joked with him about it. He's, has he ever admitted the mistake to you? Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. we okay. joked. But I said, I said, Coach, you know you could have had me, but you thought Chenoweth was a better player than me. He's like, he's like, Big fella, that's a mistake I live with all the, live with all the time. You're not gonna get them all right. <laughs> so you know, Roy's a good guy. So we we, we joke about it. Um, and, and, and like I said, Eric Chenoweth at that time was a high end recruit. You know, Roy mm-hmm. just chose the wrong recruit. Did Duke recruit you? Uh, yeah, they sent me, a, but I didn't really have any interest because I knew they were recruiting Elton Brand, um, Chris Burgess, um, Shane Battier. I knew all those guys. They were recruiting all those guys. And so when I looked at Duke, I was like. You know, I, I played against Elton. I knew how tough a player Elton was. You know, Chris Burgess, I knew he was he was tough as well, but I didn't respect him like I respected Elton. I was like, no, Elton, I, I know what that is. And so I was like, I don't see a lot of minutes there. Even if Chris, me, if Chris Burgess didn't go on to become a great player, but at one point he was like the number one player in our class, our junior year, yep. until Tracy McGrady and those guys took it over. So I was just like, man, that's a crunch for minutes. If I go to Carolina, we're only competing with who? After my freshman year, who, Brian Burstaker? Yeah, I got this. So I was like, hey, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, that's a famous Duke recruiting class, so it's pretty remarkable to think that you could have been part of that with those guys. So 98, uh, 97-98, you join a North Carolina team. You guys go on to to lose, to lose make the Final Four, lose to, to Utah in the Final Four. But that team had Ed Cota, Vince Carter, Antoine Jameson, Shamal Williams – um, when you first arrive on campus and start playing in, in pickup with those guys, what, what was your experience like? When I first got there and started playing pickup, I knew that this team was big time. I knew that Vince Carter and Antoine Jamison were special players. Um, maybe not in the pickup game, but my first, our first real practice, the first play from scrimmage, um, Vince Carter caught the ball on the baseline, drove past Orlando Melendez, and he hurt, He jumped straight over. Roy, actually, Roy Williams' son, Scott Williams, he jumped over his head the first play. Like, live <laughs> basketball action, not like a dunk contest. Like, he caught the ball on the baseline. Scott went to take a charge. Vince cleared him and left Scott standing there. I was like, <laughs> this is a different level of basketball. Because playing in North Carolina, I was the biggest guy on the court all the time. I was always in the state middle lane. I blocked shots. I never worried about getting dunked on. Well, nobody in the state dunking on me. You know, I, I was, in, but it was a different level. Like, it was the first couple of days, like, Vince would catch me sometimes, Antoine, because Antoine was so quick but yet explosive. And people don't remember because when he got to the league that he shot so many jumpers that he did all his work in the paint when he was in college. Antoine never shot a jumper. It was just all quick athletic plays around the basket. So it was a little bit of, it was a, little bit of a different experience. And then we had incredible guard play with Ed Coda, with the Coda floater, and Shimon Williams, who, by far is the hardest worker in Carolina basketball history as far as working on his game. So he was always prepared. All right. So then Dean Smith retires. 
did did you how did he break the news to you guys he actually told us it was that we had at carolina we have a thing called uh, um the 12 minute run and the mile run and so you these are these are different conditioning tests that we have and so um you have to get a certain amount of you, you have to beat a certain time and we had the mile run that day and i had to beat six minutes and i told you i was overweight coming in and all summer long, I've been cutting weight. I had cut 20 pounds during the summer. I practiced this mile run. But it looked like I wasn't going to make it. And they have managers at every, like, at, at, at every corner of the track, and they're telling you how much time you got. And so, man, I, they tell me, like, you got, like, 30 seconds. I bust it. Give it all I have at the end of this mile. End up beating my time by one second. So I had to beat six minutes. I crossed at 559. Oh, man. Feeling good. Oh. I'm accomplished. I'm like, whew. I didn't think I'd be able to do this. Coach Smith was there. Yes. And he says, hey, guys, we got a meeting in the players' locker room. I'm like, whew, I'm feeling good. Like, my, my first meeting, I get up to a good start. And he says, fellas, um, I always told myself when I didn't have that burning passion for this anymore, I'd step away because I don't want to cheat you guys. I want to be able to give this game all. I think now is the perfect time to step away. So I go from a, an incredible high of accomplishment because no one thought I was going to make my time. And if you didn't make your time, you had to keep doing it again until you made your time. And so, no, I go from a credible, incredible high of accomplishment to a low of, wow, Coach Smith isn't going to be there. Um, this is one of the main reasons I came to Carolina. Are, are we going to suck this year? Um, like, like, can Coach Guthridge handle this? I mean, I didn't say at the time, but I had to work. Can, can Coach Guthridge handle this? You know, because we definitely, we definitely had some personalities on the team. So it's like, hey, that's one of the best things a coach can do. Coach Smith was great at handling personalities. I'm like, man, what, what is this going to look like? So for me, it was, it, was, it was a little bit disappointing. There were some guys in there that, that had a, a longer relationship with Coach Smith. They were in there crying. But uh, I was just in a place of uncertainty. And, and, and uh, I was like, man, I'm going to see how this starts out. You know, if, it, if this don't look good, man, I might have to get up out of here because this wasn't what I signed up for. But it turned out to be great. Coach Guthridge was well-equipped for the job, and we went on an incredible run. I was just going to ask, how did he earn your trust? I think Coach Guthridge earned our trust by just being himself. He did things his way. You know, people criticized me. He did things his way. Um, rest, rest in peace. And he was very hard on me. Very. Coach Gutter was very. When I, I didn't actually like Coach Gutter when I was in Carolina. I grew to appreciate his coaching when I when I left Carolina because he saw more on me than I saw myself. Like he was like he always pushed me to be better. Like he watched we watched film. He'd be like, "Yo, you just dominated for a half, but you didn't dominate the second half." You know, like yo, you gotta you gotta you gotta bring more to it. And Coach Guthridge wasn't scared to be himself. I think one thing he did, like, he couldn't really decipher who was going to be the, the starting five. We had a rotating starting five that year. That's never been done, I don't think, in college basketball. Like, where you have six – he had six starters. So every game, no matter how big the game was, that person had a – so one game it might have been Shaman Williams didn't start. One game Antoine Jameson might not start. And that was – and people criticized it, but that was just his thing. He believed all six of those guys deserved to be starters, and he did that in the work for our team. And so – I just saw Coach Guthridge not, as, not afraid to be himself. Um, he coached me very hard. And at the end of the day, I, I ended up having a healthy respect for him. Yeah, well, that year was that, was that crazy run to the Final Four in 2000 when you're the eight seed. You destroyed Jaron Collins in that, in that Stanford team, the, the number one seed in, in, the, in the round of 32. When did you guys feel like we can actually make a run? We knew we could make a run. Uh, just from the jump, all year long, we knew we could make a run if we got to the tournament. We knew we could make because we knew we didn't play our best basketball. We knew we were talented. I mean, that was a team with, like I said, myself, Julius Peppers, um, 
Joe Forte, Ed Coda. Uh, we knew we had talent. Um, Chris Lang. Uh, we knew we had a lot of talent on the team, but we didn't always put it together. Uh, and so once we got into the tournament, and especially after that Stanford game, we're like, yeah, we could really do it. Because Stanford that year was one of the best teams in the country. You had the Collins twins on the team. You had Mark Madsen. And we're like, yeah, we can beat these dudes. We can beat anybody. And from there on, we just went on to continue to do it. Unfortunately, we, if you go back and look, we had an incredibly tough phantom foul call against Ed Cota against Florida that I'm still upset about that really changed the complexion of the game because we really didn't have a backup for Ed. Anybody else mm. could have gotten in foul trouble. We would have been all right. Um, but once Ed went out, the game really changed. I think if Ed Cota didn't get that foul, foul call, we end up playing Michigan State in the championship. Mm. Um, I don't remember. Now i got to go back and watch that video. But I did want to ask about Peppers. And I remember seeing him that day in, in, in 01 up close for the first time. And he was, you know, he's a, a monster. It give, it give us one of the Julius Peppers is just different stories. Man, you know what? If I got to go, if I'm going to tell you Julius Peppers is just different story, I got to go all the way back to high school. Okay. Because we play on the same, a lot of people, me and Pep have known each other since we were 16. We play on the same AAU team, the Carolina Warriors. Um, but we didn't, like, times were different. Like, there wasn't YouTube, you know, like, all the guys didn't know about the other players within the state. So we, so we picked him up because we had played against his team, and we knew he was pretty good. But we didn't know who in the hell Julius Peppers was. And so you remember back in the day, they had, they had all the magazines with the rankings on them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're on a we're on a team we're on a team van and everybody's talking about where they're ranked. I'm like, yeah, I'd have moved into the top 25. We had guys like Craig Dawson that went on to play at Wake Forest. He was talking, and so everybody's talking about where they're ranked. And so we're like, yo, Pep, where you rank? He's like, I don't know. We're like, how don't you know? He's like, well, you know, I'm actually a little bit better in football than basketball. But like, we have no idea how good this dude is in football. <laughs> like, I, like this, like we're just like, I mean, how good are you? He was like, well, I'm, I'm the number. He's like, I'm I'm probably one of the best. Look in the state, it's not a nation. Oh. We said, we said, really? So we go. So when we stop at the gas station, or I think it was a drugstore, we go in, we get a magazine, we we go get the, we buy the football magazine. So we're in the, we like Pep. You, I thought you said you were one of the best players. You said you play running back. They don't have you listed as one of the best running backs. He's like, for real? And Pep don't say a lot. So he said, all right, let me see that. Then he just he turns, he flips the page, flips the page, and then he points and he points to the bottom of the page and hands it back. He doesn't say, put his headphones back on. At the bottom of the page, it said, as a gold star beside his name, it said, utility back. Number one player in the nation able to play any and every position on the field. <laughs> <laughs> so, like we, so then we tap on the back on the shoulder again. Said, yo, yo, shake your headphones off. Dude, you told us you were a running back. This says you play everything. He said, oh, yeah, I mean, I just like running back the best. He said, but I play defensive end, tight end. He said, I play defensive end, tight end, running back, fullback. Um, he named something else. So I was like, any other back besides quarterback? I was like, <laughs> this is crazy. He's linebacker. I was like, what? So that is my first experience with knowing that Julius Peppers was a freak of nature athlete and was different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Because we're riding around playing basketball tournaments, not knowing we got like the number one player in the nation on our football, on our team for football. We had no clue. What a beast. Also, he's also a big, like top triple jumper too. He let us in on that fact too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had we had no idea the, the type of athlete that we were. We knew what type of athlete he was, but we didn't know that he was that good in other sports. All right, the rest of North Carolina first triple double in UNC history against Miami, eighteen, fourteen, ten blocks. No big deal. Let's move on to draft night. Can you can you detail what you remember about 
Draft night. Draft night was draft night was a weird experience as well because I talked to my agent and we had pretty much pegged that I was going anywhere between like eight to about mm, thirteen, fifteen at the lowest. Orlando, like Orlando, he's like, dude, Orlando loves you. You're not sliding past Orlando. So I'm like, okay. And so I thought there was a chance I might go to the Detroit Pistons. Um, they even told me, hey, look, we're going to take you if a guy by the name of Rodney White's not available. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, Rodney White, I mean, he, he was supposed to be a top five pick that year. He's not going to be there at eight. And all of a sudden, the draft went crazy because I think at number two or three, the Memphis Grizzlies throw a curveball out there, and they shock everybody. And a guy that wasn't supposed to go in the top, I think, five to ten, goes, goes high. Turned out to be pretty good. Things Powell Gasol. Memphis got it right. <laughs> yeah. But so once Powell Gasol goes high, there's a ripple effect through the draft. Everybody starts sliding now because no one thought that this guy was going there. And so now I get to Detroit and they're like, oh, well, Rodney White's there. So they t- end up taking him. And then I was, I, I, th- then you look out there and Sagana Jop went before me and there was a bunch of other players. And so I go from being really, really excited to being really nervous because at 15, Despite I thought I was definitely going, I thought I was going 15 to Orlando, maybe 13 to Seattle at the time. All of a sudden, I hear Stephen Hunter at number 15, and I start thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. And one of my friends, uh, my boy, uh, his nickname is Putt, and so I look at him, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't worked out for any of the other teams. The team, I hadn't worked out for I didn't really work out for a lot of those other teams past 15. Mm-hmm. And so – I'm worried. I'm seeing other guys go. I'm, I'm seeing guys like Mike Bradley get drafted before. I'm like, Mike Bradley, man, come on, man. Y'all, y'all are tripping now. And so I, I'm, 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 I'm worried. I'm nervous. And those five minutes in between picks seem like 30 minutes in between picks because I just, I just kept replaying my head with Shard Lewis. Like, like I think it was the previous year where he was crying. It was the year, the, that year, the year before. Well, he was crying at the draft. And I didn't want that to be me, but I knew I was getting towards the danger zone and slipping out of the first round. And then all of a sudden, with the 20th pick, um, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers, tra- dra- they draft me, and then they trade me to the Orlando Magic. So it was true that Orlando did like me. And so they came back and got me, and so everything worked out well because now I'm happy. I'm going where I thought I was supposed to go. Now I can celebrate with my family. I ended up being traded that summer to the Washington Wizards, but just getting out of that green room and going to Orlando, I went from really, I went from really confident at the beginning of the night to really, really nervous to distraught to being happy that I finally achieved my goal. You end up playing with with Michael Jordan on the Wizards, and obviously being Carolina guys and knowing how he feels about the school. What was your relationship with MJ like before you became a Wizard, and then what did it develop into? Um, you know, like my, it was weird because my I didn't really have a relationship with Mike before. I got to the Wizards. So he had came back, but he didn't come back much. You know, at that point, you remember Mike retired. Like Mike, Mike wasn't coming back playing every, every summer um, at Carolina. And so I was closer to the other guys that did come back. Um, but seeing at first, it's like, okay, you got to get used to the fact that it's Michael Jordan, the guy that I grew up watching, the guy in all the commercials. You know, he's in my locker room. He's playing with me. But then it becomes different because it's a unique situation because He's not just a player. He's also the he's also like the owner of the team. Like <laughs> because maybe he had he had owned the Wizards and then came back. So he was and he was supposed to go back into ownership. So it's it's like playing with the owner. 
that it'd be like if you're LeBron James and you're in Cleveland, you're playing with Dan Gilbert, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different type of situation. So because of that, I had people, good people in my life. They were like, always be professional because you do know you're playing with your boss. You're not just your mm-hmm. team. And so I never really got overly buddy, buddy. Like I, I always talked to Mike, I was jovial, but I never got overly buddy, buddy with him because I had people that I respected that always told me, Hey, you got to play this as a, as a, in a professional manner, because if you're telling this guy all your secrets and, and this, that, and the third, that can be used against you at a time mm-hmm. when it's your contract negotiation. And they were, I definitely, I remember talking to Richard Hamilton. He told me, listen, Mike, the player is a lot different than Mike, the guy in the front office. And he figured that out when he went up there to try to get a contract extension was eventually traded to Detroit. So for me, I was a little bit apprehensive around Mike. I always watched what he did because I knew I could learn from him, but I didn't, I didn't try to get into his inner circle because I understood, man, like I, I'm not sure if I want to party with the boss. Well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. How, how different was your rookie season from Kwame Brown's rookie season? Oh, man, my rookie season was uh, incredibly different than Kwame Brown's. Um, first of all, I, I understood basketball better. Kwame Brown had didn't under, and, and it's not his fault. It's, he was a kid that came out of high school, and he didn't have the tutelage that I had. For four years, I learned how to play basketball at Carolina. This isn't me selling Carolina. This is just the truth. I learned how to play. I learned basketball concepts. I learned where I'm supposed to be on defense, how to play pick and roll coverage, uh, you know, a, how, to, how to do certain drills to get yourself ready for the game. Kwame didn't do any of that. He just used to go out there and hoop, but he was so big, fast, and strong that he would just dominate people. But he didn't understand basketball terminology. I remember, I remember Doug Collins saying, okay, guys, we're gonna, today we're going to defend the UCLA cut. He looks at me and says, yeah, but what's the UCLA cut? I'm like, this guy doesn't really know. This guy doesn't really understand the game of basketball. He didn't grow, he didn't, he didn't grow up watching basketball. Like, I mean, we play in Philly, and after the game, he comes back in the locker room because we're about to go up to the bus. And he had this confused look. He's like, man, I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, nothing's wrong. Like, some, some, some guy was talking about me working, working with me on my hands and stuff like that. I said, some guy. He said, yeah, just some, some, some like, he's like, I think he's team doctor or something. I said, the team doctor was talking to you about this? He said, yes, I'm doctor. I walk out the door and make a right as Dr. J. You know, so, so you have to understand. Like, he didn't, he didn't under, Kwame didn't understand basketball. He didn't grow up watching basketball. He was very immature. Like Kwame, like I came into the league at 21. Kwame came in at 18, 19. I made some of those, the mistakes that Kwame was making as a rookie, I made as a freshman. You know, like, hey, I came, I came in as a freshman and I didn't always want to do some of the, the freshman chores that we had to do. And so guys made life hard on me as a freshman. So I realized that when I got to the league, anything my vet said, when we talk about Michael, whether it was Jordan, whether it was Chris Whitney, whatever you guys need, I'm going to do it. Even if I don't like to do it. You know, like, hey, sometimes like, hey, man, hey, Rook, I need you to go get me this. Rook, I need you to go get me that. Hey, Rooks, you got to pass out the practice gear. Rook, like, whatever it is, like, all right, fine. Well, Kwame had a hard time with that, and because he didn't always do what he was supposed to, all our vets made life hard on him. So it was it was it was tough for Kwame because our year our experience was different because he didn't have. I think Kwame needed that college experience, and then second, I told you I looked at Mike with apprehension, even though I loved everything about him and I and I watched him. 
Kwame looked at him and he was trying to be in that inner circle. And, uh-huh. because, and, and Mike was never letting him in there until he was ready. And I think that messed with Kwame mentally. And Kwame never really became what he could have been because he was very talented. He was fast, he was strong. Like, if you go back and watch, like, back in the day, like, guys like Yao Ming had a very hard time posting up Kwame Brown because he's naturally strong. He's fast, he's quick, he's explosive. He just never understood how to put it together. And he was very immature. You give, a, you give an immature 19-year-old a lot of money and no guidance, and sometimes bad things happen. Mm-hmm. I read that you had a quote talking about Shaq from your, your rookie year and you met him on an elevator and uh, he asked you, are you good? Is your family good? Do you need any money? And you said, no, yeah. I'm good, Shaq. Thanks for offering. And, and I'm curious about this story. How much of that is because of the respect that he saw in you earlier? Or how much of that was just Shaq being Shaq? Uh, I think it was just Shaq being Shaq. You know, now, now working with Shaq at TNT, that's who he is. He's a given person. And if you go back and look at, even when he played for the Lakers, he would always help out the young guys. I remember, like, was it Mike Pemberthy or somebody like that? He bought him a car. Same thing. He helped out Mark Madsen, these guys. Because Shaq had so much money that he could look out for some of the younger guys. And so he just was like, hey, hey, bro, you good? Tell me good. Need any money? And I was like, nah, man, I'm doing pretty well for myself right now. I'm good. But appreciate you. I, I couldn't take money from the competition. Like, I, mm-hmm. I can't take a couple thousand from you and then go out there and hoop against you, you know? So I, I just couldn't do it. So, but I, I like the fact that he offered because, you know what, some, some rookies are in tough situations because they get this money. They don't know how to balance checkbooks. They don't know how to uh, save money. They got a thousand to one people pulling at them this way and that way. And they don't have as much money as people think they have. So I appreciate Shaq understanding that. Um, but at the same time, I, I couldn't take his hand out. Understandable. So you're talking about uh, being a rookie. So on JJ Reddick's podcast this week, you had Drew Holiday on and they were talking about hazing. And I know that rookie hazing doesn't really exist anymore. But JJ was saying that one time he was he was late to a meeting. So the guys and, and he said, nobody liked me anyway, when I when I was a rookie, but I was late to a meeting, I came in, they told me to sit in a chair and, and to apologize. So he apologized. And then they duct taped them to the chair and threw him fully clothed in the shower for an hour, cold water, and then left. And an equipment guy found him. So I thought that was, you know, one end, one end of the spectrum. And 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 Drew Holiday was saying that like how like great of a rookie he was. And he said, Yeah, I mean, I used to have to make all the rubber runs. Guy called you up, was like, Yo, I need uh, need the condom, or here's like they give you a bag, <laughs> they give you a bag of 150 yep. condoms. Condom, the condom got- bag, oh yeah. Right, right. So, and you have to carry it around your backpack. And like, that's, a, that's tough to explain to a girl why you have 150 condoms in your backpack. Where, where, did, where did you fall on that scale? Like, when, and, and your rookie year of, of hazing versus where it is now, where it's just kind of non-existent. I let them mess with Kwame because like my, guys like myself and Bobby Simmons, we came in with Kwame. We did whatever they told us to do. And so you don't really get hazed as long as you do it. Just, if you're on time, if hey, like, you know, back then, like sometimes, uh, they they might like some guys might say, Hey Brooke, I want my bag brought to my room. Like I don't want to wait for my bag. I want you to go get my bag and bring it to my room. And so that's cool if it's a one game trip. But you know, if, if you're on a five game West Coast trip, you know, somebody hey, this back when we had to all dress up in suits. We we're not wearing these uh these un these these, these see through fishnet shirts like some of these guys are wearing now. <laughs> so it's like this this bag was heavy, but you know what? Like fine, no matter what it was. And man, you know how the vets do. They don't tell you to wait for their bag in, in the city like Orlando. They wait for, hey man, wait outside for my bag. It's a city like Chicago, man. And that Chicago win, man, it's just, whew, but you just do it. 
And so once you do those type of things, as far as like waiting for bags, like Drew said, uh, the condom runs, I had a weird situation because I was, because I was, I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I had a vet that would actually come to my room at all times of night to try to get me on long road trips to use my credit card. Because like if he was trying to fly somebody in somewhere and he didn't want somebody else to see it, uh, it shows up on my credit. Now he would give me the money. So he might say, hey, hey, big fella, I need you to, it might be two o'clock in the morning, my phone ring off the hook. And, and he'll not, then he'll show up at my door. And he'll be like, okay, here's $500 for the plane flight. Now I need you to get the plane flight for this person from this city to, to meet us in the next city. All right. And so like, it'd be like, it might be three o'clock in the morning. It might be 11 PM. You never know. It could be right after shoot around where I'm trying to take my nap, getting ready for the game. But I had a vet that I was like his personal travel agent, because, you know, if you book a flight for somebody, it shows up on your credit card. And this guy uh, couldn't afford to have that (laughs) name that shouldn't be there showing up on his credit card, but a single man doesn't have to worry about that. So all year long, like it never failed. It, I mean, like we go on a long road trip, like it's like clockwork. Like, man, boom, 2 a.m. Hey, man, I need to use your credit card. Like, dude, can we do this in the morning time? No, I'll be there in, in 30 seconds. Like, right. <laughs> long as you do it, then you don't get in. You don't end up taped up uh, in the shower like JJ Ray. Right, I'm not right, gonna lie. Right. If I got to tape me up and left me in the shower with cold water running for an hour, I'd be a little upset. I'd be a little yeah. upset. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, I wouldn't blame you. Hey, what was it like? And we have so much more to get to in your career, but what was it like year two? So you've got Jordan on the team and then Stackhouse and Oakley show up. That year, it was a lot of aggression in the room. Let's just put it like that. Because, you know, Stackhouse is a guy that doesn't play. doesn't back. Right. Yeah. And then, but, you know, Mike has his ego. And then Oakley is the resident tough guy. So, like, guys like myself and Jared Jeffrey we would love to clown around, but we understood there's only a certain amount that we could do within that locker because those guys would check you quick. And once they checked you, if you didn't like it, you had to fight. But this isn't today's, today's, today's basketball where you get into an argument on Twitter. No, 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 no. These guys will, will tell you something, and if you didn't like it, well, so what you want to do then? And you know if you fought them, you had to, even if you won, you had to fight them again tomorrow. <laughs> so... It was a totally different type of locker room when you throw in Jordan, Stack, Oakley. But I will say this, and I actually got a chance to talk to Oakley about this uh, when I was covering the Big Three this year. He was talking about the young guys and how things are today. And I said, oh, those young guys don't have anybody like you in the locker room. I knew I couldn't get out of line but so much because you were there. And I didn't want to fight you every day. I'm sorry, I didn't. (laughs) Like, I understood I said, Jared understood that he couldn't do certain things because Mike and Stack were going to check him immediately. I said, teams don't really have that nowadays. So to a certain extent, it was a blessing because we learned how to be pros. And then at the same time, there wasn't really a lot of getting out of line around that locker room because we had guys that are checked quick. We had really good sets. Now, you did get into a fight against the Bulls and Antonio Davis in 2004. What, what sparked that fight? That was... A, that was I didn't even have any beef with Antonio Davis until that day. And so literally it was basically between Kirk Heinrich and Larry Hughes. They kind of get into it. And Larry Hughes, people didn't realize, everybody thought that Gilbert Arenas was the leader of our team. That was false. The leader of our team was Larry Hughes. 
Larry Hughes, like, you don't mess with Larry. Like, you don't, we, his nickname is Boogie. You don't mess with Boog. And so Kirk Heinrich kind of gets into it with Larry Hughes. And, you know, Kirk thinks he's kind of tough. So he gets in Larry's face. So I walk up and I push him. I'm like, yo, man, get out of here. And so, so when I push him, then I feel somebody push me. And it's Antonio Davis. Next thing you know, Larry pushes Antonio Davis. And so now it's starting to get a little crazy. And Antonio's talking real aggressive to me. And this is probably like, I want to say like my third year in the league. I don't even know what possessed me to do that. But next thing you know, he's coming towards me, and I smack him. I have no idea why I smacked Antonio Davis. <laughs> like, it was not like, – it's kind of like, you know, you got the good – like, you got the, like the, 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 the good devil, the, 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 good, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. I didn't have the angel. Both, 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 on both shoulders, like, who's this guy talking to? You should smack him in the face. As soon as I smack him, he charged me. And so I wasn't ready for that. I thought he was going to square up. And he charged me. And so then I throw I back up, I throw a haymaker, miss. And so our fight, once again, is not even with each other. It's between, it's because of Kirk Heinrich and Larry Hughes. We just kind of get into it. <laughs> Eagles go into play. I smack him. Of course, you smack a grown man. He, try, he tries, he rushes at me, miss my punch, he tackles me. And I'm, I'm about to take the L of all L's. And my guardian angel, Mike Ruffin, comes in and saves the day. So as soon as I, as soon as I miss my punch and he tackles me, I'm on the ground. Before he could get a punch off, Mike Ruffin grabs him and locks him up. And that's the end of, and that's the, end of the fight. And you, so and ever talk, fight. you and AD ever talk about that? Nah, we never really. Because we, we weren't. Like, for a couple of years, he was still mad at me about it. He was trying to be tough about it. You know, like, I see him now in the airport all the time. I say, what's up to him? Like, it's not like we still have any beef. You know, you don't flinch when you see him? Or you don't look over your shoulder for Michael Ruffin? Nah, man, I'm, I'm, it's, it's so much different. First of all, man, I'm, I'm so different now, man. But yeah, yeah. I, I would try to talk, I would try to talk to you before that, before anything like that happened, man. Forty years old, you have a lot more wisdom. I'm not trying to be a tough guy. It was just man, being young. I felt like once he started talking aggressive to me, I, I felt I had to be, I felt I had to show I was tough. Oh, man, mm-hmm. fine, man. You talking crazy? Take this smack. Take the skippy pats. <laughs> and so it was just one of those situations where that's what I did. And true story, Mike Ruffin. I think the following year gets traded to the Milwaukee Bucks and his daughter is on his daughter's out there selling Girl Scout cookies. And she, she looks sad because she's like, I'm not going to meet my quota. I was like, well, how, how much, how far are you, how, how far are you to meet your quota? She's like, she's like, she had like hundreds of boxes that she wasn't going to make. I said, baby, your dad saved my life. I'll buy every last box. I was, I hey, listen, they delivered these these cookies to the to the Wizards practice facility. I was passing out cookies for a full month to everybody. Coaches, janitors, the ticket guy, guys on the everybody. You want some cookies? You want some Girl Scout cookies? I got minutes, I got whatever you need. Whatever you need. So I bought every last Girl Scout cookie she had. But yeah, our fight was really about nothing. It was all basically Kirk Heinrich, Larry Hughes. Ego got involved. I smacked him. He tackled me and then Mike Ruffin came in and that was that. All right, before we move on to before we move on to the Mavs, the um you said that Larry Hughes was the leader, not Gilbert Arenas. Is there is there anything that hasn't already been said about Gilbert and Javaris Crittenden? I think the only thing that really hasn't been said is that the silly part of their whole situation was they weren't even fighting about – people thought they, they were fighting about money. They are fighting about – once again, basketball is a lot about pride and ego. See, when you're younger, you don't understand how to talk through your problems. So a lot of times you talk aggressively, you put your chest out. And and you feel like you got to do a certain certain things. They didn't even owe each other money. The money that was owed was between JaVel McGee and Earl Boykins. 
like th- those guys were talking and JaVel was winning and JaVel just simply was like, Hey, you know, um, no, JaVel was winning. So Earl was like, yeah, now that you're winning, can you pay me my money? And, Earl, and, and so of course, JaVel and Earl, they had a good relationship. JaVel was like, yeah, I got you as soon as we land. And Javaris simply was like, oh man, you can't be owing anybody any money. And you know, Javaris had owed a couple people some money in the card game. So then Gilbert said something to Javaris, cause you know how Gil is. He said something slick. Javaris fires back. And now they're going back and forth arguing about money that's not even theirs. That whole fight stemmed off of money that wasn't even their money. Mm. And so that's the, that's the biggest thing I took away from it. I was just like, I think it, at the time I even said it, cause they were talking about what they were going to do to each other. I'll, I'll shoot you. This, that, they, were, they were talking crazy. I said, man, why don't I just fight after we get out of the parking lot and leave it alone? Hey man, just fight. Whoever win, win. And then we go home. And but then they didn't do that, and then the the guns in the locker room situation happened, and I think the thing people don't realize is that Gil was actually joking. He was trying to be a prankster. Gil was not really. It it, it wasn't how it seemed. Where like it was like the OK Corral, and Javaris pulled out his gun. Gilbert pulled out his, and teammates were running out of the locker room scared. Most of the guys weren't even in the locker room. That's the thing people don't. Most guys weren't even there because it happened super early, super early. You had to be one of the first guys to get to the locker room. So like so that's the thing like yeah, I, I just took away that man pride, once again pride and ego gets a lot of young players in situations they don't need to be in. Mm-hmm. All right, speaking of money, free agent summer of '09. How did Mark Cuban convince you to come to Dallas? Uh, he didn't really have to convince me. I'd already played there for a year. So oh right uh, right 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 yeah so he so I'd already played there for a year. I got I got traded with Karan Butler to Sean Stevenson. Right right and. I love the organization, um, love playing with Dirk, uh, Jason Kidd, all those guys. Um, so it didn't have, he didn't take much convincing. I mean, there were some other teams involved. It was a, it was a, it was different just simply because uh, LeBron was a free agent and he kind of held up free agency. And I was actually considering Miami if LeBron decided to go somewhere else. I was like, well, D Wade and Chris Bosh are already in Miami. So I was considering it. Ah, mm. uh, yeah, I, w- I was I was considering it, and then you know, I was like, I don't know. That summer, after Braun made his decision, he like sent me a text. First of all, I thought it was weird because he called himself King James. Hey, this King James. I was like, excuse me. Thought I was being punk. <laughs> Who does that? You know, what I'm saying like, I don't think Michael Jordan called you on the phone and says, "This is airness." And so, like, it was just a, it was a weird. He's like, "Hey, man, would you be willing to take a pay cut to be a part of something special?" I'm thinking to myself, "Man, hell no, nah. I wouldn't be willing to take a pay cut to play with the '92 Bulls." Like, man, are you crazy? <laughs> so, I, that that was what I took away from the summer. But once he decided to go to Dallas, I just told my agent Andy Miller, "Listen, man. I mean, once once LeBron decided to go to Miami, I told my agent Andy Miller, listen, let's get it done.' I know there's some other teams like Detroit was interest interested. Uh, there were a couple other squads. I said, let's just get this thing." done let's get back to dallas i think we can do something special when did you know you had a championship team i didn't know we had a championship team until we swept the lakers i'm not gonna say really? swept them. i'm not even gonna say swept them i'm gonna say when we won game three when we won game three i knew they were done they were they were they were the bullies the bullies were the bully the toughest bully on the block was was done he was done like they didn't have any more fight left. The only person that had anybody, a little bit of fight left in him was Kobe. That was it. The rest of them were ready to go on vacation. Uh, but you have to understand, that year, we weren't 
the higher, highest seeded team. People pick against us in every single series, the Portland series, the Lakers series, OKC, and the Heat. And I, I knew we had a good team, but I can't say for four. I knew if we got into a playoff series, we had a chance to beat anybody. But to say I knew for a fact that we were just good enough, no, nah, in the regular season, man, sometimes we had ups, we had downs. I mean, Dirk got hurt for a little bit. We couldn't win games out of the man. Like, we were trying to figure out how do we hide Dirk defensively because Dirk was killing offensively, but defensively he was out of place a lot. And so, like, these are things that you that get exposed in a playoff series. And when we play the Lakers, and from the game plan, and we had an excellent coaching staff. When you talk about, you know, uh, Dwayne Casey on the staff, um, you talk about uh, uh, Terry, Terry, Stotts. Stotts, B- Terry Stotts being on that staff. You know, we had an incredible coaching staff. Our game plans were incredible. And every time they put a game plan together, if we executed it, it always worked. That's comforting when you're a player. When your coach puts together a game plan and you execute it and it happens just the way he says it's going to happen, they, that, that now it's easier to buy in. And so when we went out there against the Lakers, they, it, it was simple. Listen, they're, they're, they got two bigs. And this is before everybody played like this. He said, we're going to put them in, especially Bynum. We're going to put him in every middle screen and roll available. He doesn't play it well. Whether it's J.J. Barea, Jason Terry, when you, Brendan, when you're with that second unit, we want you setting all drag screens. And once we were able to run the Lakers ragged and beat them, and I saw the quit in them. Like, in game four, our crowd was yelling, beat L.A., beat L.A. Andrew Bynum looked at me and, yeah, and, listened, and started saying, let's go home. Let's go home. I said, are you for real? He said, man, I'm ready to go, dog. Mm, in the wow. middle of the game, he's, I'm ready to go. When you can beat the champs and to, and to where they 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 quit, like listen, we can say we can say a lot to worry about the Lakers. You look at the film, game four, they quit. I played with Lamar the next year. He said at halftime, he said he realized, man, these guys wanted too bad. If you talk to them, they quit. They didn't. They knew they couldn't win no more. If you can make the champs quit, you can beat anybody. And that's when I knew when we made when we made them quit. I knew we could beat anybody. Brendan, was it eleven when in the film that? I guess we've seen now of of LeBron and Dwayne Wade like faking the the coughs because Dirk wasn't feeling well during the finals and then Dirk was insulted. Was that was that that 11? Yeah, that's 2011, yeah. So when did did you guys you heard about that at the time or you saw that at the time? Yeah, we saw it. We 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 saw it at the time and and you know, I think if you were really honest and you asked LeBron and D-Wade and Chris Bosh I don't think those guys respected us. I really don't. I think they thought that, you know, we were just another hurdle they had to get to on their way to greatness. Like, oh, okay, man, we're going to go. Like, like you know, because it wasn't like we were like the a, a all-time talented team. It was Dirk and then a lot of stars that were past their prime but still could play. Like Sean Marion could still play, but he wasn't Sean Marion from Phoenix. Jason Kidd could still play. But he wasn't Jason Kidd from his days with the with the New Jersey now Brooklyn Nets. Like he wasn't that guy, you know. So they probably thought they could walk through us, and they didn't really. I don't think they had a healthy respect for us. I really don't. Um, if you go even go back to Game Two where they end up losing, Dwayne Wade hits a shot in front of our bench and starts dancing and cutting up, and they don't score again for the rest of the game. They they did not respect us, and we understood that. And when they did, when they were like. That game where Dwayne Wade was dancing, that's where they that's actually where they lost the series. If the Heat go back and look, they lost that series when Dwayne Wade hits the jumper to put them up fifteen 
with five minutes to play on the clock because they don't score another basket again in that game. Mm-hmm. And we win that game. And instead of going, going back home, 0-2, it's 1-1. Yep. And for us, though, we realized, yo, they don't respect us. And then when Dirk, when the situation happened where D. Wade and LeBron were laughing at Dirk being sick, Dirk was truly sick. He's our leader, and they're laughing at him. Dirk didn't take it as an offense, but we all did. All of us took it, took it to it. Like like, and so for us, it was we're going to make them respect us. And at the end of the day, at the end of game six, I feel like we finally got our respect from those guys. So, so as a team, that respect factor, how does that come together? So few guys are, are in that situation where they're playing in an NBA Finals against an all-time great team. Um, you guys are all professionals. But how does that come together? Is that, is that in the locker room? Is that, is that Jason Kidd giving you a speech? Is that, is that you know, during shoot-around? Is that something that Carlisle says to you? How does that come together that you guys say, they're not respecting us, Let, let's go? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to your team culture. Our team culture was that we always had each other's back. And so Carlisle didn't have to give a speech because we were already talking about it because we saw it on, we saw it on sports center. We saw it all over the TV. They were laughing. We, we saw it. And so no one has to give a speech because yeah, Dirk's not mad, but Jason Terry's mad and I'm mad and Deshaun Stevenson's mad and Sean Marion's pissed off. And so it's not one of those things where we come out there and we say, Oh, well, we're going to rough these guys up. That's where a lot of people get lost when they, when they think of what toughness is, they think toughness is taking hard fouls. That's not tough. That's old school 90s basketball that's played out. Toughness is when, you, when you're upset and you say, okay, I'm going to play these guys even tougher mentally. I'm going to play them tougher mentally. I'm going to get into their space. I'm going to take the challenge. I'm going to fight through screens. I'm going to pick up LeBron full court. Go back and look at the tape. Jason Kidd, Sean Marion, Deshaun Stevenson, picking up LeBron full court, making them work. We're going to stick to the game plan. You know, We're going to give smart fouls. They're going to be tough fouls, but we're not giving up and one to LeBron James. Like, that's what, what it, all that, when, when LeBron James and D-Wade were talking, all that did was make it ratchet up our level of intensity a little bit more. And no one had to say anything because we already were there because we wanted to win. But now it's like, oh, not only do we want to win, but these guys think it's playtime over here. Well, okay, we will see who has the last laugh. Yeah, I mean, you, and then you guys had it. So let's fast forward. So in Cleveland, so since you said that LeBron texted you and said, hey, it's King James, you want to take a pay cut and come to Miami, when – you went to Cleveland in in 15. He wasn't there yet. So did you text him and say, hey, it's B-Wood. You want to take a pay cut and come to Cleveland? <laughs> nah. I, uh, like I said, when I, got, when I signed there, I, I actually was shocked I was going to get traded. I didn't think I was going to get traded from Charlotte. And so when I got traded, I just I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, that team I knew was, gonna, was young, was going to have the number one pick, which turned out to be Andrew Wiggins. So mm-hmm. I just – it was uh, – I felt like I was in a in a rebuilding stage, you know. I was like, well, I was I was, I was getting older in my career. I knew I only had a couple of years left. I didn't want to go through really want to go through a rebuild, um, but I knew I was going to go there and and be supportive. I, I wasn't going to pull the Andre Iguodala, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but at the same time, um, then all of a sudden LeBron goes there and everything changed. The expectations of the team changed. Um, the, the makeup of the team, they were able to get Kevin Love after that. Uh, every, 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 they end up signing Sean Marion. So they, they end, everything changed at that, from that aspect. But uh, it was, 
when I first got traded there, I'm like, okay, we're in a rebuild. And then next thing you know, within like a week, it's championship expectations. And mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to play a lot on that team simply because I was recovering from my – I had like a foot surgery, so I had broken my foot. And by the time I was actually really, really ready to go and confident, you know, the, the coaching staff had already – like Coach, Coach Blatt had already given up on me at that point. But, you know, but at the same time, I still really enjoyed being on that team because I still got the help from a veteran perspective. Um, and that's something I think that Andre Iguodala really could have given to the Memphis Grizzlies this year because I felt yep. like we were kind of like in the same situation. Obviously, he's a way he's a way more accomplished player because of the MVPs and things of that nature. But I just felt like I could help this squad by you know helping some of these young guys, talking to guys like Tristan Thompson, Kyrie Irving, um, giving them perspective on what to do, what not to do, some of the mistakes that I made uh, when I was younger. And I think that's very important to a locker room. So that was something that I wanted to give to this team. I think when I, I I think that's why, like, when you look this year, fast forward to the Memphis Grizzlies, I think they could have used that. And I think that's why you saw some of those guys lash out at Andre Iguodala because, uh, you know, he said that he didn't want to be a part of them. He didn't want to give he didn't want to give them that veteran presence without even giving them a chance. And so I think that's why some of those guys lashed out like that at, at, at Iggy. I'm glad they were able to uh, all hash it out, though. You said you knew the moment that the the Mavs won the series against against the Heat. When did you know that you weren't going to win the series against the Warriors? Um, I didn't realize that we couldn't win that series until the very end. It's, it's probably you can actually see it. There's a clip probably in, it's in Cleveland where we're like you know maybe like two minutes on the clock. Steph goes in for a layup, um, puts them up. I, I forgot what it puts them up by, but it's, it's double figures at that point. And you could just see like LeBron's body language change. Um, I don't even think he challenged the shot. And so uh, I think at that point, that's when I knew we were going to lose. He came. He came to the bench. He was very distraught, and I could see like you know, that was the leader. You cut off. You cut off. You cut off the. You cut off the head, and the body will follow. When we saw LeBron go, and, and there wasn't a lot of time left, so it wasn't like I don't want anybody to think LeBron didn't quit. But that's when I knew that the game was that the game was over, because you know I could tell from LeBron's body language that he knew it was over as well. But it was late. It was late in Game Six, real late in Game Six, probably like two minutes on the clock. Mm-hmm. Did you have a? an instance that sticks out in your head, Brendan, that like here's the the difference or here's the similarity of Jordan as a teammate, LeBron as a teammate? Uh, they, they're just two totally different players. They're wired different. Mike is just – Mike is more cold-blooded. He's more calculated. He's more of a natural killer. I think if you really look, LeBron had to learn how to be that. Um, LeBron had to grow into, into what Mike – already was like when he first came into the league. So they're really different from him. The, the biggest thing I take away from playing with Mike and LeBron is that they're two totally different guys mentally. What they have in common is they both work incredibly hard. They're, they're both incredibly hard workers. Like you don't get to be as good as those guys without being hard workers, but mentally they could like mentally personality standpoint, they couldn't be farther. They could, they, they could be farther apart from each other. They're polar opposites. Right, let's do some quick hits. When did you know that it wasn't going to work out for David Blatt in Cleveland? Right away, he was scared to challenge LeBron James in film sessions. You can't do that because you're going like he. I didn't think he was going. I, I didn't know how if he was going to get fired. I didn't know he was going to get fired the next year, but I just didn't think that he was going to be the guy that led Cleveland to um, a title simply because he was scared to challenge LeBron. We even had vets like James Jones go to him. It's like, coach, we all see like when LeBron messes up on film and you don't call him out on it, and you just skip to the next play, we see that. More importantly, the younger guys see that. 
and what what it's doing it's it's causing guys to not respect you you know now now it's like oh well you'll talk to me aggressive but you won't talk to braun like that and so when he when when david black was scared to call out braun in film session that's when i knew that he was going to struggle because as a coach all your players don't have to like you they don't have to love you matter of fact probably only a couple guys are going to love you because only a couple guys are going to be happy with their minutes and their shot attempts right Everybody else is going to be one a little bit more. But everybody has to respect you. And that's what, like playing in Dallas, like the, Rick will coach you hard. But everybody respected Rick. You didn't love him every day, but you respected him. You respected Rick Monday through Sunday. You respected him. And I don't think Coach Black had that respect. And then there was other chinks in the armor. We could see late in ball games, if he had to draw up plays, we could see he was super nervous, his hands would be shaking. He'd have to give the clipboard to Larry Drew. Larry Drew would draw the place up. And when you see that, you understand. Like, this dude ain't ready. He's not ready for this. He's not ready for this. And it's not his fault because he he thought he was taking on a rebuilding project. And then next thing you know, LeBron James calls up David Blatt and says, I'm coming. And now instead of taking on a rebuilding project with Kyrie and Deion Waiters at the forefront of it and Tristan Thompson, you have LeBron James and Kevin Love there. And now you're competing for a title. Uh, I just don't – I think just – Coach Black got hit with too much too soon, but it was easy to tell right away that Coach Black was probably in over his head. You were part of the high school class with, as you mentioned, Tracy McGrady took over late in that shot up to number one really late in the rankings. Um, When's the first time you knew Tracy McGrady was was the real deal? Oh, man, we played in high school. (laughs) We played in high school. Like, you know, our high school was ranked high. Mount Zion was ranked high. They destroyed us. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of guys like Tracy. There weren't a lot of guys 6'9 that did what he did. And, you know, back then, 6'9 guys played in the post. And so I remember getting switched on a pick and roll, and he just looks at me and smiles and goes right around. And that's what I knew. I was like, oh, this guy's different. This guy guy is incredibly talented. This, This guy's different. And when you look at Tracy McGrady, he didn't have nearly the success, and I'm not comparing the two. But when you look at skill set, he was Kevin Durant before Kevin Durant. He was the big mm-hmm. 6'9", two guard that could pull up at will and get his jumper off on anybody but was athletic enough to dunk on you um, at the rim. Now, Kevin Durant took it to a whole other level, and he's won way more than Tracy McGrady. But Tracy McGrady, he ushered in that wave of player to a certain degree. What do you want to do now in the media that you haven't already done? You know, I just want to continue to grow in media. And so whether that's um, – building up my brand more on radio, TV. I just want to see how far I can take it. You know, I, I look at media now the same way I looked at basketball. It's, it's a challenge. And so whether I'm calling the NCAA tournament or whether I'm calling games on NBA TV, I want to understand how can I be better? Um, how can I give the fans um, a great experience? I, I like, cause I look, I watch a lot of football. And so a guy like Tony Romo to me is one of the best. Damn sure he's getting paid like one of the best now. <laughs> and, so, and, and so what I love about Tony Romo is he breaks down football in a way that the common man can understand it, but he's still entertaining and he himself. And that's what I try to bring to the game. Like, I don't like to talk about hawk cuts and UCLA cuts and, and button, button hooks because a lot of fans that didn't play don't know that. What's a hawk cut? So, but you, so I don't want to talk in that terminology on TV. So I don't want to talk, but I, I still want to be able to educate a fan about the game of basketball. But then I want you to be able to see who I am, my personality, because I'm fun-loving. I like to have fun. Um, I'm jovial. Um, you know, 
And so I want all that to come through. So I just want to be able to take that as far as I can. You know, hey man, Charles Barkley said he's gonna be retiring in the next couple of years, man. Maybe maybe it's taking it all the way to the top on TNT. Mm-hmm. Who knows? If my, bo- there you if go. my boss is Olivia, there you go. go ahead and give this clip to Tara and Olivia. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Your sophomore year at North Carolina, you guys are upset by Weber State. Everyone remembers Harold the show going off. It was probably the worst game at least of your college career. But what what a lot of people don't remember about that then is that that summer you go and play in the the World University Games with Kenyon Martin and you have a dominant summer. And so I'm just curious because I think it's one of the great redemption stories of all time that <clears throat> you went from this period of this low and then uh, and then immediately after that take it to to a high point. Um where did that come from? What 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 inspired that idea that you didn't just go into a shell or you go hide under a rock, but you came out firing that summer? And you know, I just be- I just believed in myself, and I always say it's never uh, it's never as bad as it seems, and it's never as good as it gets. That's always been my philosophy, just in life, especially in sports. And so, listen, I had a bad game. Okay, so what? That, what are you gonna do? And I remember going trying out for that USA team. And it, the, the, our assistant coaches were shocked I made it. Everybody thought that Chris Lang was going to make the team. When he got cut and I made it, they were surprised. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of those things that I've never been scared to compete. And even if I fail, I'm going to compete. And that's one, that, that's, that's one thing that helped me in the league is that, you know, I, I, I knew I couldn't hang offensively with guys like Yao Ming and Shaquille O'Neal, but I was never afraid to compete against them. That's why I was able to be a very good defender for a long period of time. I'll go out there and compete against Kevin Garnett. Let's go. Let's see what he got. And I was never afraid to compete. And so once you get me into a setting, uh, we're trying out for the USA basketball, and um, I'm playing against everybody. Okay, I know that's Kenyon Martin, but, yo, let's go. Let's compete. Let's roll. And, you know, there were a lot of good players. Eton Thomas ended up getting cut off that team. But, but I just, like, I was never scared of competition. And so one, one failure was never going to be anything that defined me no matter what level it's on. So, like, yeah, you know what? I don't play well against an NCAA tournament. We we lose in the first round to Weber State. And I guess people thought that I was just going to curl up and go away. But, nah, the sun's going to come up tomorrow, and guess what? I'm going to compete, and that's what I did. All right, so you've got a kid on the way. I have a five-year-old yes, daughter. Sir. Adam's got two teenage daughters, a three-year-old son, and a daughter on the way. Wow, you Adam, want- man, you, boy, you – man <laughs> – I needed uh, I needed someone to go on a rubber run for me and never got the opportunity. <laughs> uh, do, do you want any unsolicited parenting advice? I'll take as much advice as I can get because I know zero about parenting. All right. One, make sure you go get the book Baby 411, okay? okay? Because you don't have time to look at the internet for every little thing, and the internet will drive you nuts because it's all opinions. Go get Baby 411, and you'll be able to look up everything. Two, I think is I think I've told you this before. Parenting an infant is like playing in the NCAA tournament. Survive and advance. Once you start looking to your next day's opponent, you are screwed. Every single possession <laughs> matters. And if you think that you've got an easy layup, you're going to miss it and it's to the other way in a hurry. Adam, you got anything for him? It is so much more challenging and difficult than you ever could anticipate but at the same time it's way more rewarding 
than you could even ever start to imagine. Because until you have kids, you don't understand how selfish you've lived your life. And I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way for anyone, but I just know for me personally, like that, that's all it, it doesn't really matter. You don't even need to take care of your partner that much. It's they can they're self sustained, but your kid. I think you're giving me good parenting advice, but bad advice from my parents. I'm just not getting yeah. divorced. Like, like <laughs> true, true. But I but but here's the thing: your significant other will survive on her own. But but those kids that those kids don't survive without you and and your love. But I I just. It is the the greatest experience of my life, and um, yeah, it's it's what drives you. There's no other greater motivator than than the children. So, congratulations to you, and um, yeah, we're super excited that you uh, that you jumped on with us. I know, man. Hey, I appreciate all the parenting advice. And April 9th, my world changes. Alani Joy Haywood will be here. I'll let you guys know how it goes. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. All right, last one. It's the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So we always close with this one question. Anyone you've ever played with, high school, college, pros, game on the line, you give them the ball to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket, who you got? Um, that's easy, Gilbert Arenas. Uh, and I didn't even say and you can't choose Jordan because <laughs> that's that's always the thing is everyone chooses Jordan. I played with 40-year-old Jordan. Right, you, know you played with 40-year-old Jordan. You know what yeah. Hey, listen, you give me Gilbert Arenas pre-knee injury, there was nobody that there was there was nobody better that I played with. Now, one thing I know what Michael Jordan is, but when I played with him, he was forty years old. Give me Gilbert Arenas, healthy. People really, they really they really took his career for granted because he got hurt. But man, he had a three to four year run where if he would have played in today's game, he would be so celebrated. He'd be like a bigger, stronger Dame Lillard. And we see what Dame Lillard is doing. So with the game on the line, I'm giving it to GA, Agent Zero. Brendan, we appreciate it, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. This was awesome. Congratulations again. Uh, thank you very much. So in 2015, that's when I first met Brendan. When he was, he was banged up. He wasn't playing. The playoffs started for the Cavs. And one of his representatives reached out to me and said, can you do something with Brendan on video? And I said, yeah, sure. And I was working for this company, at that point that we were putting digital videos on websites all over the country. And one of them was cleveland.com. We were working with a lot of newspapers and I was a Cleveland plane dealer. So here they have a player on the Cavs in the playoffs and the finals on camera talking about the team. So I think, I mean, I never worked it into any of Brendan's media contracts, but he really, he really should at the end of every show. Thank me. He should. I, he doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't, but he wants to be a media star and he's on his way. And we always joke about so-and-so doesn't get enough respect or doesn't get enough credit. I don't get enough credit for Brendan's media career. But yeah, it's cool. He just, he just, it's cool though. Cause he just gave us over an hour and he was great. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was incredible. And listen, selfishly, uh, if I had the choice of him constantly giving you credit or him giving us a really revealing interview for over an hour, I'm going with the really revealing interview for over an hour. I mean, I love you and all, but I'm just saying uh, I'll take it. And I do want to say that the one thing that he has uh, that all great broadcasters have is candor and the willingness to speak about subjects 
that are difficult. And people think that means oftentimes that it's about naming names. But oftentimes, the most revealing thing you can do as a broadcaster and open up about is your own um your own insecurities, your, your, your own issues, your, when you were fallible. And I, I think that he does that. And the idea that he's speaking so honestly and candidly, I think is what's really going to make him special. And Barkley has that. And there are a few handful of other guys that I've worked with that, that have that same thing where they'll talk about um, openly issues in the locker room, things that happen, faults of their own. And when you're able to speak about yourself, then people don't mind when you speak on others. Yeah, and I, and as always, we left a lot on the cutting room floor, mm. and we'll have Brendan on again at some point. But I, I was really interested in the, in going from you know high school in North Carolina up to the pros, and I mean you could do the full hour on playing with forty year old Jordan. That, I mean, that's another question I would ask Brendan: Is are those years? Not does Jordan not get enough credit for those years? I mean, yeah, sure, he looked funny in a Wizards uniform, but there are certain nights that no, he didn't look like '90s Jordan, but he was pretty damn impressive. But I also wanted, I also, I also did want to know if he, if he ever fought, if he ever had to throw hands with Stackhouse or Oakley. I mean, you've got Jordan, Stackhouse, and Oakley in the same locker room. I mean, he, I mean, he, he's played with. Played with Jordan, and you said what? It's one of he's one of four players ever to play with Jordan and LeBron. Yeah, one of four to play with the both of them. Larry Hughes, Jerry Stackhouse, Scott Williams uh, are the three others. So remarkable, those guys right, and got then, such. Right, a and then playing experience. with he played with Vince. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's high, it's high, remarkable. School, high school against T Mac. I mean, his, uh, yeah, there's so many guys, as he, as he discussed. I mean, he played alongside Ron Artest and Elton Brand, Lamar Odom, Shane Battier, all in the McDonald's game. I mean, there's just so much. And then, of course, um, you know, all the guys that he played with in college. So I'm still I'm still amazed Ed Cota never made the NBA. The one question, as as we leave it here, Noah, that I was going to ask that I didn't, but maybe it's even a better question for you because sometimes you get too close to it on the inside. What do you think the ceiling was for those Wizards? If everyone stayed healthy, if there was no gun incident, all the things that ended up happening in Washington, that core of Karan Butler, Gilbert Arenas, Anton Jamis, and Andre Blatch, and, and Brennan Haywood, what do you think their ceiling was? All right, so LeBron, 03, he wasn't ready to compete right away. But then you had those, you had those Pistons teams that the Pistons ended up beating the Lakers. So... Sure, the wiz- Sure, the, could the Wizards competed with them? And then you fast forward. I mean, big three Celtics probably not, because um, then Gilbert had gotten hurt too. So yeah, I mean that's a team that I think that's a consistent Eastern Conference semifinal team, and with a few trips to the maybe a, a trip or two to the Eastern Conference Finals, then you look at them a bit differently. Yeah. All right, so. We go ISO every Thursday, long-form interview with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA in some ways, including Brendan Haywood, who spent all those years in the NBA. You can go back and listen to all those episodes with Brian Marcillo, Peter Vesey, Earl Watson, players, media members, executives. So go back and listen to those. They're evergreen, so there's no true timestamp on it. 
We're with you every Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday is 25, 30 minutes, a little life, a lot of hoops, all here on Rejecting the Screen, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, where if you're a fan of a certain team, you've got a 20, 30-minute podcast every single day for your team. That's what the Locked On Podcast Network is all about, your team every day. You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Koslov, C-O-S-L-O-B. On Instagram, yep, we're still working on it, at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.